Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. We try to bring you commentary that's smart, conservative, and non-tribal. It's March 30th, 2018, Good Friday. I'm Charlie Sykes, and this seems like a good day to talk about what's going on with the Catholic Church five years into uh, this papacy. And joining me uh, to talk about that, Adam Kuyper of the Weekly Standard, and Stephen White, a fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. And Stephen has written a story with the, an article, link the article, with the provocative title, The Pope's Mess, five years into his papacy, assessing the Francis record. And, and since we're talking about the Pope's mess, before we get into the, the piece, there was a story on Thursday, Pope Francis abolishes hell, saying <laughs> souls of unrepentant sinners will simply disappear. So, Stephen, before we get into anything else, has, has, has the Pope abolished hell? We'll start with the easy questions. <laughs> no, no, he hasn't. Um, he couldn't even if he wanted to. Uh, the story here is uh, right. The story here is is it would be more unusual if it was the first time something like this had happened. Unfortunately, it's not. Uh, there's an, an elderly, 93 year old, I believe, Italian uh, atheist journalist by the name of Eugenio Scalfari, who's something of a confidant or friend of Pope Francis. And every so often, the Pope will sit down with him for for a lengthy interview. And Scalfari will take no notes and not record the conversation, and then reconstructed from his 93-year-old memory, he'll publish uh, what, what the Pope said. <laughs> and so the, 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 this first happened within, the, I think, the first year of, of the Pope's uh, reign. And, and it's every couple months there will be another one of these interviews where Scalfari will say, the Pope said this outrageous thing that's clearly and unambiguously heretical. And then the, the Vatican will say, well, though, those aren't actually the words that the Holy Father said. So they'll they'll deny they'll deny the story, but the denial will be sort of a, a muted denial. They don't they don't say that's absolutely wrong. He just they'll just say something along the lines of that's not exact. Those aren't the Holy Father's exact words. Um, and one might be forgiven for giving a an interview to an old friend uh, who sort of re- incorrectly reports what you said, but to do it twice or three times or now five times um, when what's being misreported are basic Christian truths. Um, being put into, uh, being contorted, and then the, the the false version is being put into the mouth of the Pope. It's a bit mystifying, let's say, why the Pope keeps giving these interviews to Scalfari. Stephen, well, they, they, yeah, can, can I sorry, just jump in real quickly? Stephen, I don't know if there's a word, the, the, the Vatican equivalent of Kremlinology, if there's a Vaticanology, but is, is does the timing, is was that uh, intentional? It's Holy Week, and the story comes out now. Uh, what what uh, what do you read into that? Well, I don't know exactly when the interview was given. My guess is it was given uh, in the last week or two weeks. It may have been fairly recently. Recently, it might have been a little while ago. It's pretty clear that it was published uh, when it was. It came out on Holy Thursday uh, for a reason. Uh, it gets a lot more attention when that, when that happens. Um, and th- that's actually, apart from the content of what the Pope is reported to have said but almost certainly didn't, uh, part of the problem is that you have this holiest time of the year when the Church recalls the Passion, Death, and Come Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the foundational moment in Christian history, and indeed for the church, the foundational moment in all of history, in all of human history. And what everyone is talking about is whether or not the Pope believes that anybody goes to hell, instead of talking about what the church is supposed to be talking about and what the church is in fact talking about. Uh, so that we've got this big distraction that sort of dropped on us right at the outset of Holy Week, which is too bad. 
Uh, but well, story, and I have to be, to be like fair, this, to be though, fair, help it, explain why you know, some, for someone like 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 me, I'm a I'm a I'm a Catholic, not a, not a great Catholic, but I'm so often confused about what this pope is 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 saying. Um, trying to figure out where he is at on on the liberal conservative continuum, and you know when he first became pope, I can't you know remember how many times I read stories like okay. No, he didn't really say that. There was a problem in the translation. He wasn't clear. So that's why your piece, I think, is so helpful and why Ross, uh, you know, Ross uh, Douthat's book is so helpful, trying to sort of break down what this papacy is is about and, and why sometimes it's so confusing to people outside the church. So can you just give me a sense? You know, your, your, your story is the Pope's mess. What What is the mess um, that uh, the Pope Francis finds himself in the middle of or or that he's helped create? Well, the word mess actually comes from the Holy Father himself, right? So he's got this saying that he's sort of fond of, and I'm going to butcher this the Spanish, but it's Hagan Leo, which make a mess or make a ruckus, Mm -hmm. which he often encourages people, especially young people, to do. And I think think what he's trying to get at here is that uh, a church that is constantly worried about not doing anything wrong— uh, is a church that's sort of defensive, a church that is f- feels beset by by uh, the con- contemporary culture, by the modern world, not without reason, um, is a church that can easily become merely defensive. And if the church is in the defensive posture all the time, then the church isn't going to be doing the things that the church exists to do. And in this, Pope Francis is, I think, absolutely right. And in this, he's, he's in firm continuity with and echoing things that his predecessors, including Benedict, have said. That the church exists to evangelize. It has a mission. It has to go out. And if the church is just trying to make sure that it never crosses any boundaries or, or breaks any rules, um, then, that's, then that's a problem. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. Now, that doesn't mean that rules aren't important. It doesn't mean that, that truth is flexible. Um, what the Holy Father is trying to do, I think, is to try and just shake things up, to get people out of the def- defensive posture that he thinks the church has been in or been in too defensive a posture for too long. Um, and get them sort of looking outward again. I think that's what he's doing. It's pretty clear. He said that's what he wants to do. Whether that strategy is working, whether shaking things up and and um, sowing confusion or inviting confusion, depending on how you look at it, is going to, in the long run, enable the church to better sort of transmit its message to the world has yet to be seen. Skeptics of this strategy... Um, and I count myself among those most of the time, I think, um, would say, well, look what's going on now. We, here we are in Holy Week, as we just talked about, and you know, the, the, the press is covering the papacy, but it's not about what the Pope is doing, preaching on the, the, the suffering and passion of Jesus, not about the resurrection. It's about whether or not the Pope's words to some 93-year-old Italian were reliable, and what does that mean about Pope Francis or about what the Catholic Church actually believes. So it, it has, runs the risk of being a distraction. This strategy has a chance to sort of break out of a defensive posture, but also comes with it a great risk of, of creating all kinds of distractions and, and a mess. And here's the thing, is that it's pretty clear to me now that that's a calculated risk, that Pope understands that risk, hmm. and it's a risk he's willing to take. Steve, uh, your your piece, the kind of the, the the reason for your piece, the timing for it now is the publication of Ross Douthat's book to change the church. It's a critique of the papacy, but you describe it as a respectful one. What will readers of Ross's book, which just came out on Tuesday of this week, what will readers of Ross's book find in it? Yeah, I think I did worse, and I called him pious, and I meant that in a good way, actually. <laughs> um, 
Ross is Catholic, right? And and like most Catholics, I think uh, they they want to think well of the Holy Father. Uh, and if you are confused by what he's doing, if you are troubled even by what he says and does, then that 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 um, respect can become uh, the respectfulness and piety towards the man by virtue of his office uh, becomes important. But it also makes it a job like writing about the Pope or reporting about the Pope tricky. It's fi- it's fine to be critical of the Holy Father in certain ways, but it matters how one is critical, and it matters. Um, how often one is critical and how, how carefully one examines what he's saying and, and tries not to impute motives. So it's this complicated question, what exactly is the Pope up to? Trying to ask a Catholic that question gets even more complicated because he's not just a leader of the Catholic party. He is, uh, as Catholics say, he is the, the vicar of Christ. He's the servant of the servants of God. He's Peter. He is the rock. He holds the office in the church that is dedicated to being the, the physical uh, presence of Christ's unity in the church. He's the sign of unity. And when a lot of what we hear about him and from him seems to be make a mess when his Petrine ministry is supposed to be dedicated to unity. How does one go about assessing that and 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 evaluating that, even critically, without falling into someone who's just against the Pope? It's an awkward position for, for a Catholic to be or, against or, or the Pope. Or just seeing it in terms of, of American political uh, Right, exactly, or reducing spectrum. it to I mean, political. Is he liberal, is he exactly. conservative, is he leftist? You know, what, what, what is, are, are his positions on consumerism? Right. All of those things. You uh, and, 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 and Ross Douthat spent a lot of time, though, talking about uh, this, uh, what you call the doctrinal brinksmanship, um, a debate in the church over and, and to a lot of non-Catholics, I think, I think actually to a lot of Catholics, it's going to seem something a little bit abstract and maybe a little bit anachronistic. But this debate about the question of communion for the divorced and remarried, why do you spend so much time on that? And why do you think that that is actually uh, crucial to the, the fate of this papacy? Well, I, you're right. It does get into the weeds a lot, and it can seem an abstract, even legalistic point. Um, but the question of sacramental discipline, what is the sacrament of the Eucharist? What does it mean to be a member of the church? What is the moral law and how does the church understand its moral teachings and its authority to teach those things? Lots and lots and lots of aspects of, of how the church understands what it is and what it's about come to play and come to bear on this question of the divorce, the communion for the divorced to remarried. And so while it can seem sort of this, this sort of abstract and sort of legalistic point, um, it's it's a point that has so much theological significance um, that it, it's different in a way than than the Pope expounding on what he thinks about global warming or about uh, you know, capitalism or whatever. So so there was some suspicion, for example, among American conservatives about Pope Francis because he would talk about about politics and economics with a sort of Peronist flavor, mm-hmm. and that's that's fine actually. Um, he may be right about economics, may be wrong, but he's not crossing any doctrinal boundaries. Um, and it's not exactly news that, that popes are critical of consumerism or that they want think that, that uh, mm-hmm. Catholics ought to be good custodians of the environment and things like that. And he talks about it in a certain way. But, but those don't touch – those aren't in, – in, in, in talking about those things, he wasn't coming close to any doctrinal boundaries. On div- the question of communion for the divorce and remarriage, he really was really coming right up to the edge. Um, and I think he knew that. He, he, he wants to find a way to open up communion to the divorced and the remarried. He's very clear that he's been pushing that, and obviously that's, that's spurred the, 
the talk about uh, whether or not you have brinksmanship or even schism and and all of the divisions. But I mean, it's very clear that this pope wants to update, reform that particular policy. Well, it's clear that he wants to be more welcoming. Um, it's it's there's a lot of evidence that suggests that what he wants is to open up communion to the divorced and remarried, at least under certain circumstances. There's evidence to suggest that that's what he wants. He has not ever said that that's what he wants. So you've got this very delicate theological and doctrinal question that he's trying to resolve with sort of a uh, do what I mean but not what I say because I'm constrained in what I can actually say explicitly sort of way. Um, or perhaps a less pious way to put it, is sort of this doc- magisterium by wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right? So he he in, opened up these questions. He had two synods to discuss these questions, and at the end of the day, he kind of sort of just punted. He made it ambiguous enough uh, that no one could say the Pope said you can't do this, but he also made it ambiguous enough to say, uh, you know, the Pope didn't open the door to this. And that's exactly what happened. So you have bishops in certain parts of the world that said, um, you know, those who are divorced and remarried can under circumstances, certain circumstances, come back to communion. But not just the divorced and remarried. This moral logic applies to, um, say, same-sex couples or all, all kinds. The, the, the range explodes from there. So all kinds of different people who have traditionally been said, look, you're not living according to what the church teaches. You can come back, confess. Um, make yourself right with the church, and then you're welcome back to communion. That gets much more complicated now, and you've got different interpretations and different parts of the church. But that's not the way the church is living. I mean, I I think one of the disconnects here, and let's get your reaction to this, one of the disconnects is that whatever the pope uh, decides, the American church and much of the the Catholic church in the West has, has already made its peace with this, that the divorced and remarried people are getting communion, that if you talk to your priest or the bishop or the archbishop or the cardinal, they would tell you, no, we do not want to exclude you from this. So the practice of the church has already moved on. Yeah, that's 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 true. It, now, it's it, it has in a lot of ways in the United States, and it has to a greater extent in places like Germany. Um, but there are lots of parts of the of the calf, of the world that aren't the United States or Germany. Argentina is very different than it is here, for example, and and in Africa, which Ross gets into in the, in the I don't talk about it much in the in the review, but he gets into in his book. He talks about how how sacramental discipline and who who is and is not permitted to communion looks very different in Africa than it does in in the West. In the West, it's sort of you know divorce and remarry is not exactly a rare bird these days, right? Even in the Catholic Church, and and the de facto practice for a long time has been that yeah, don't flaunt it, but you know you. you a lot of people who are divorced and married come to communion every every week in the Catholic Church. But the rule still says that that's not allowed. So there's diversity in pastoral practice, but not diversity in principle. Okay, And so it's somewhere like Africa, where the problem isn't so much divorced and remarried, but say polygamy and things like that, the same rule applies. And yeah, the practice is more or less implement, implemented successfully, but the principle is the same in Africa as it is, at least on the books, in the U.S. as it is in Germany, etc. What you have now or what is developing now, is diversity in principle, which is a much different problem for the church than diversity in practice. The, the church can tolerate a great diversity and has, and diversi- uh, tolerate a diversity in practice, imperfection in the application of the rule. Um, it can tolerate that to a great degree and for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. How well the church so, can tolerate yeah. uh, a diversity in principle is a different question. So, Adam, I we should have asked you this before we got started. Are, are you Catholic? I'm not. No, I'm not. Okay. But uh, okay. okay. So, how, how does this this discussion sound to you? 
Uh, well, I have uh, so many Catholic friends and colleagues and former colleagues that it's uh, it's something I'm very familiar with, and uh, I, I've followed the story pretty closely. And so I was fascinated to see both uh, what Ro- the story Ross unfolded in his in his book and how Steve described it too. One one of the things that Ross recounts is the story of the behind the scenes machinations at these two synods, and you described this in your review too, Steve. Uh, is there some next uh, similar kind of n- knowable in advance scheduled uh, debate or, or decision point? Is there some some moment, pivotal moment that we know now is coming uh, where uh, these issues are going to come to a head or at least come, you know, to, to be even further uh, d- debated in public? I mean, there's another synod scheduled, but it's it's not on this subject, right? Yeah, that's right. So there's a synod coming up later this year, but it's going to be on, on young people in, in, in the church. Um, there's not really a, a plan to officially revisit this this question of communion for the divorced and remarried. Um, two synod seems to have been enough. The the Pope has said what it seems all it seems that he's going to say about the matter, at least for the foreseeable future. And those uh, several Catholic cardinals went through the, sort of the normal formal channels to ask for clarification on what exactly it is that he is teaching. And their their uh, queries have been sort of ostentatiously ignored. Now that's the Pope's prerogative; he doesn't have to answer questions; he doesn't want to. But he was asked um, formally to clarify this teaching, and he has so far, for, for a couple of years, declined to do so. In the meantime, you're getting diverse interpretations of what the Church is teaching from in different places. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. it's been said often. You know, what is considered a mortal sin on one side of the Oder River in Poland is considered perfectly normal and a source of grace on the other side in Germany. That's an odd position and and a very problematic position for the Church to find itself in. Well, you know, as as I was as I was reading this, one of my reactions, the reason I asked Adam that, how does this sound to a to a non-Catholic? As as a Catholic who, in fact, is divorced and remarried. I'm reading this and thinking, um, and by the way, and I've talked about this, and I, I, I'm not going to recount the private conversation except to say that you know one of the highest ranking um, you know clerics in in America. I actually had a very very specific discussion with him about this, and uh, he had a I suppose non orthodox uh, point of view, and he was quite reassuring about it. But it also struck me that that uh, that on this uh, Easter weekend probably well south of 1% of American Catholics are, are sitting around thinking about this particular issue mm. as something that is fundamental to their faith. Uh, I mean, I understand the theological arguments. I'm quite familiar with the theological arguments. But I do wonder about whether or not the, the, the church has gotten itself into, you know, a, kind of a, you know, angels dancing on the head of a pin issue with all of the issues of faith uh, that that are confronting you know the the world, not just Western society, you know whether or not this is just a highly annoying um, distraction. Yeah, it, and not only that, but to put to put it back in terms that Pope Francis might use, you know, is this not just further evidence of the the need to get the church out of this defensive posture and stop worrying about yeah. sort of doctrinal points and get back to the business of spreading the gospel? Um, and it seems to be, it seems to me that that's been his sort of reaction to the resistance that he has encountered, is just to sort of take that as evidence that he his intuition was right and that we need to just move on from this. Um, and to to Douthat's credit, to go back to his book, to Douthat's credit, he he acknowledges that that his concerns about this issue might be overwrought, that he might be wrong, that history might might uh, in the end uh, justify Pope Francis's not only strategy but tactics on this question. Um, 
But Douthat uh, balances that supposition, or that presupposition, with with uh, sort of a, another narrative, which is a narrative where um, you know the the ripple from this seemingly um, abstract doctrinal point issue outward and end up bringing about tremendous changes on lots of moral teachings that would have a tremendous uh, effect on 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 the Catholic Church, not just on the Catholic Church's you know standing slippery, in the world. Slippery slope argument. Well, yeah. I mean, look, if, if, if the words of Christ in the scriptures about divorce and remarriage, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, if those can be discounted in the way that some people, not necessarily the Pope, but some people who, who support the Pope's interpretation would like to see it interpreted, it calls into the question, well, what authority does the church have to interpret the scriptures itself? How, how reliable are the words of scripture themselves? And this isn't simply sort of uh, sort of fevered worrying on the part of sort of some um, cranky mm-hmm. Catholics. You know, the the head of the Jesuits in recent months, maybe it was last year, made a comment about, well, we don't know exactly what Jesus said about divorce and remarriage because there were no tape recorders there. Yeah, anymore. well, that's, well, that's, that's okay. problematic. So, yeah. Right. So, the, so there are people who who will who will you know the Pope yeah. obviously wants to open up a space for for mercy, and this is one way he wants to do it. There's also a lot of people in the church who are willing to take that inch and run a mile or five. Um, and that, I think, is what is most concerning to Ross, and it's a concern I share. Um, and it's also part of the style of this papacy that makes that more likely because of the ambiguity, because of the willingness to sort of stir things up. The interpretation of what does the church actually teach, what is the Holy Father actually saying, that interpretation often comes not from the Holy Father himself, but from those around mm-hmm. him, those who are interpreting him, those who have very positive and very negative interpretations well, of what he has to say. See, so it's sort of think, left yeah, to the crowd I, I, to decide. How I interpret this is is that the Pope and, and others are basically saying to people like me, yes, you are welcome. On Easter Sunday, you come, you are welcome to the table. Whereas the the critics are basically saying, no, we might as well just become an Episcopalian. <laughs> it's just, you know, no, you're not actually welcome here. Uh, you are closing the door. And, you know, again, this this is the kind of I, the way the, I'm hearing this is that when, you know, when when Archbishop Timothy Dolan, before he became cardinal, was here, he said, you know, absolutely, you know, you are welcome. We want you in this church. We want you taking communion. And what I hear Ross Douthat saying is, uh, no, go someplace else. This is this this door is not open to you. And I think that's the way a lot of Catholics and a lot of other Christians are going to interpret this particular debate. And by the way, that's not a theological debate. That doesn't answer your point. I understand that. Yeah, well, that's what you're saying is is something that will resonate with a lot of people, including a lot of Catholics, I think. Um, and it's one of the things that critics of the Pope haven't been um, good enough about providing an answer to. I mean, there's, there's lots of people who say, well, why wasn't the Pope more clear? Why doesn't he give clear answers to these questions, these legitimate questions from faithful Catholics about what exactly are the implications of what he's saying? Um, and I, I remind myself, and I'm trying to remind other people too, that there was an awful lot of doctrinal clarity under Benedict XVI mm-hmm. and under Pope John Paul II, and that didn't provide the answers to the problems that that in many ways grew worse under their pontificate. Now, I, won't, I don't blame them for that, but if doctrinal clarity was sufficient to address these challenges, they would have been addressed already. So I, I'm someone who thinks that doctrinal clarity is very, very important, but it's clearly not sufficient. And I think admitting that, and I think that's something that Douthat does admit, admitting that is a big step towards actually turning this conversation into something that might be productive rather than to 
um, uh, an argument between two increasingly entrenched sides that see everything the other side says as reinforcing the stereotype of what they think the other side wants in the end. So you know, you're right that, that this is a question that plays very differently from a theological argument point of view from a, a Catholics in the pew point of view. Well, and it's not just Catholics in the pew. It is, of course, evangelization. It is reaching out. It is the the, the pastoral approach of of the Catholic Church, which I think that the Pope initially, I think, was hoping that his papacy would be defined by, as as, as you describe, is to is to bring the gospel, is to bring that 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 sensibility to to find a way to get the church out of that you know sort of the as you described the defensive crouch that self referential and and try to open the doors to a lot of uh, folks. Well, we're obviously not going to resolve this, just like the Catholic Church is not going to resolve this um, over the next uh, few uh, next few years. I will thank you for uh, joining me. And again, the, this piece appears in this week's Weekly Standard, uh, The Pope's Mess. It is uh, a really a deep dive into uh, one of the, the doctrinal splits within the Catholic Church. When we come back, uh, we're going to look at uh, some of the, the news of the week and the news of the day with Jim Swift of The Weekly Standard. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks Charlie. And now flipping the script from uh, the Catholic Church and their doctrinal uh, disputes, by the way, it's going to totally screw up my entire Easter Sunday when my wife hears the, the previous podcast. Uh, but uh, joining me is uh, Jim Swift and Andrew Egger. So let's talk about, so hope is gone. Hope is out of the White House. Uh, what, what does that actually mean? Is that is that actually going to change anything, you think? I think so. I, I think Hope Hicks, um, I mean, while little is known about her, she has been viewed as a pragmatic sort of operator for the president. And, um, you know, having a new uh, person in there, whether it's Mercedes Schlapp or um, who's the other person uh, who's who's competing for I'm, this? I'm not going to even try to pronounce that name. It, yeah, the Schlapps have been cutting his tires in a pretty aggressive a Tony, way. Tony Saye. Yeah. And, and, and of course, that schlap is, is on Twitter, and he's pillorying Maggie Haberman for sharing this Olivia Nuzzi article from New York uh, New York Magazine about, uh, you know, there's this little aside about how the, the schlap's lobbying firm miraculously doubled its income when Mercedes left. So, I mean, you lose one of your principals and your income doubles. It's very, very weird. <laughs> do, do you guys know Matt Schlapp at all? I mean, do, have you met him, pers- interacted with him much? I've met Matt. I've met Matt a couple times. He's a really nice guy. I mean, he's actually one of the nicest people you will ever meet, which is why watching, you know, his his uh, transformation, uh, I don't know, remaking in the in the in the last couple of years, really extraordinary. And that that's all, that's all I'm going to say about that. The, here's, I'm, I'm not, I am not going to get into that. Here's a great quote from uh, this New York Magazine piece by Olivia Nuzzi, who's under fire for allegedly breaking into the house of Corey Lewandowski, depending on where you get your news, slash breaking and entering. Or, I mean, she was, it was dumb. Um, the, the quote here from a senior White House official about the schlaps is, how's that for f-ing hubris? The schlaps have literally turned off so many people. Access to power has turned them both into f-ing monsters. And I can see why Matt Schlapp would not like this story. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really... You know, glad that I restrained myself then. <laughs> not saying anything negative about the schlaps. He, he's and only I, been nice I, to me. I met, I met him at a Weekly Standard event a couple of years ago, and seems seems very nice. But you know, 
I, I can see the argument. Trump's changed and corrupted a lot of people, and I think Matt Schlapp and perfect, Mercedes Schlapp. Perfect example, both of them. Um, I just want to give a little bit of a rant here since I'm sitting here in Wisconsin um, watching the Republican Party having dug themselves into a really, really deep hole over this question of calling special elections. I mean, I don't know if you've seen much about it, but there was a very interesting tweet yesterday by one of the uh, local reporters who said, you know, Scott Walker has just signed a you know bunch of really important pieces of legislation including you know a hundred million dollar school safety uh, plan and and uh, uh, tax cuts etc and nobody really is paying any attention to that because all anybody's talking about is the fact that the Republicans did not want to have two special elections and a judge ordered them to do it and it looked like they were going to go into a special session of the legislature to change the laws uh, and it, it's really an extraordinary story, almost a case study of one bad decision after another. So Walker appoints a highly mediocre state senator to a position in his administration late last year, goes into effect December 29th, uh, which creates a vacancy in the state Senate. Law says you have to call uh, an election in a timely way. I'm not going to get into the weeds of how they bizarrely interpreted that. But uh, Republicans, this, uh, Walker decided uh, not to call this special election. Um, you know, ostensibly, the, you know, the legislature wasn't going to be doing that much uh, after the middle of the year, which is true. It would be costly to do it. Why not wait until the general election? The real reason, of course, was they were totally freaked out because they lost that one state Senate election, special election up in northwest Wisconsin. So for a long time, it was just sort of on the on the fringes. You know, Democrats and liberal organizations were saying, you know, is you know Scott Walker trying to suppress the vote? Why is he not having a special election? Eric Holder's group comes in and files a lawsuit, pointing out that the law is pretty clear that you have to have a special election, and and this thing kind of exploded this week with the you know a Dane County judge, which is you know liberal Dane County judge, although it's a Walker appointee telling him you have to hold an election. That's what we do. It's a democratic process. Charlie, are you uh, siding well, with, with Eric Holder? No. You know, I, I, <laughs> see, they don't do that to me. That's that's the problem. I actually – see, this is one of those moments where I kind of wish – and I almost never do this – wish I was on the radio because it would be like somebody needs to be a Walker whisperer and say, stop digging on this. The optics of this are just terrible. Everybody knows you're not holding an election because you're afraid you're losing the election. Well, too bad. You need to win elections. You can't just not hold elections. And this has played into this whole narrative that Republicans are, you know, against democracy, you know, the, you know, all of all of that stuff, you know, much of which is is bogus. But the reality is, is that they just look absurd. And now they're going to have because they've dragged their feet. They're going to go through this uh, kabuki dance of a special election almost simultaneous with the regular election. So, yeah, it is a waste of time. It's going to be a waste of of money, but it's totally, totally self-inflicted. And this is one of those moments where you go, guys, it's tough enough to go up against the other side without shooting yourself in the foot, you know, one toe at a time. And that's, I think, what's been going on in Wisconsin. And do you think do you think that do you think that wounds them and uh, for those seats sort of like with, you know, maybe Pennsylvania 18? I mean, they they've dragged their feet on this. Holders jumped in, you know, the court has ruled and now they have to do this kabuki dance. Do you think that that even like uh, you said digging? I mean, do you think that digging has, uh, you know, made matters worse for them? 
Yes, but not just in those districts. See, this is the the, the narrative is statewide and it's and it's national because it plays into this, you know, the the meme that that Republicans are trying to suppress the vote, the gerrymandering, the voter ID, all of this, and this is really sort of stoked to the fire. So whatever happens in that particular district, and it's hard to predict right now. Um, you know, the, I mean, it, it certainly was possible the Democrats were going to win. It wouldn't have made a difference because the legislature is done. But it, it, it has created a negative storyline for Scott Walker, who's going to be facing a competitive reelection. And, um, and, and it's stepped on what should have been a very, very successful couple of weeks for Walker and the Republicans in the legislature. So it, uh, it, it, has, it has multiple bad aspects of fallout. And again, completely unnecessary. It's interesting to me that it's you know Scott Walker getting into this sort of hot water, given that sort of the way he made his national name a few years back was that he was so good in elections. You know, he survived right. um, all those pushes against him with, with unions and things like that. And I wonder whether uh, the the 2016 uh, failed presidential bid sort of broke his his nerve when it comes to uh, his ability to sort of push these things through. Well, there, there's that, and there's also the fact that Republicans control everything. And so since they don't actually have to engage with Democrats uh, in state government, they've taken to engaging with one another. <laughs> you know, it's there's there comes a point in which you get uh, fat and complacent and you overthink things when you've been in power too long. Well, you can't lose elections if you don't have them. <laughs> it's the Theresa no, May. Well, that's, <laughs> and I'm that's kidding. Par- that's, that's part of the problem. And, uh, you know, it's like there are worse things than, than losing elections. I mean, sometimes you just got to suck it up and take it. But, uh, you know, the one thing that here in Wisconsin that Scott Walker's got going for him is the fact that there's about, I think, 15 or 16 <laughs> Democrats running for governor. None of them has an advantage. You know, so it's uh, the weakness of the Democratic bench is amazing. So Republicans do not need to give them new talking points, do not need to give them more reasons to be jazzed up. So anything else got you jazzed up going into this long holiday weekend? Um, it is uh, it is Good Friday, and um, at the time we're taping this, we haven't had any, you know, late Friday, you know, news dumps. This would be the, isn't this kind of like the, the ideal time to dump some bad news? I mean, Andrew, if, you, if you're the president and you want to dump something out, Friday afternoon is great, but a Friday afternoon going into the holiday weekend, uh, you know, that's prime real estate. Here's my advice to the president, and this is this is very tongue-in-cheek, but here's what I would say. Um, Good Friday is a bad time to dump your news because uh, your godless, evil foes on the left-wing media is just a regular weekend for them, but your pious supporters on the right are all tied up with church, so they can't come to your aid uh, if, if need be. So I would hold, hang tight if I were him. That was really good. Andrew, you are not just another pretty face. Preach. Preach, brother. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining me, and I hope you guys have a great Easter weekend. And thanks to everybody for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. Ha- have a very, very blessed Easter, and we'll be back on Monday.